Welcome to episode 193 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, today we're going to be interviewing, this is very exciting, uh, David Ignatius, uh, prize-winning columnist and associate editor of the Washington Post, and most important for today, the author of numerous spy novels, including the newly released The Quantum Spy, which I've read and enjoyed already. <laughs> so, David, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, joining us for the news round, up, uh, in addition to David, who's welcome to jump in, uh, is uh, Brian Egan, a Steptoe partner, uh, formerly uh, the uh, State Department and the National Security Council legal advisor, and Markham Erickson, uh, one of our esteemed internet telecom and technology uh, practitioners, uh, um, who does both FCC and Justice Department uh, representation of tech companies. Welcome, Markham. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and the and DHS, and holding the record for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump right in? And I, I want to. I, I promised I wouldn't be too hard on Twitter, but I have to say, if you were looking for an example of where social media is most likely to go wrong, watching Twitter is is really the place to to go because they don't have, you know, Google and Facebook and Microsoft are making so much money, and even Amazon, that they can, they don't make as many mistakes, they can give you privacy and security, even if it isn't really that important to them economically, because it's just a better thing uh, to do. Twitter is on a much tighter financial leash, and as a result, um, is behaving in ways that I suspect we'll see other social media uh, companies behave uh, when they start to feel the hot breath of competition. But uh, that's a, uh, a philosophical introduction to a simple news item in which uh, Twitter announced that it was taking away people's verification, that little green check that says, yes, this is the person that they purport to be, uh, from people they don't like, uh, people who engage in hateful activities, whether they do it on Twitter or someplace else. So now we have social media saying we are going to watch you outside of social media and we are going to punish you and we're going to punish you uh, oddly by de-verifying, by refusing to acknowledge you are who you are. Uh, and they've, they've walked into this trap where they treat that green check of verification as though it's some kind of uh, uh, good housekeeping seal of approval from Twitter, which they probably never should have done. They should have just stuck to saying, this is who it says, they say they are. If they're hateful, they're hateful, but they are still who they say they are. But now we're in a situation where they're saying, oh, we think that we have to decide whether we're going to um, acknowledge you as a really valuable person or not. Uh, and we're going to make decisions about that by looking at your behavior outside of the social media uh, platform that we've created. I Considering that they have, you know, Louis Farrakhan is still verified, right? He's homophobic, he's racist, he's anti-Semitic, uh, uh, and uh, as far as we can tell, Twitter is just 
buying into, oh, well, yeah, we verify him, um, and not verifying Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, who's not a very attractive guy, but uh, who probably never said anything as bad as Farrakhan has said. So it's, it, it's, it's very odd. They used to say we're the free speech wing of the free speech party, and now they are like the censorship wing of the censors party. I, What's going on here? Markham, I'll, I'll say something nice about Twitter because I obviously am not capable of doing that. Well, I'm not going to comment about either Milo or, or uh, Farrakhan, but uh, I will say this. Just first to address the prologue uh, before the, the Twitter story, which is we are at an inflection point where I'm very worried about uh, the Internet and this schizophrenic relationship that uh, we have, and not just the United States, but policymakers abroad and the media and the courts, about what to think of, of these mm-hmm. platforms that we used to think of as purely uh, intermediaries for third-party speech. This is, this is I, I, I call this the collapse of the magaziner consensus. Do you remember magaziner? Yes. Said, oh, this is such a valuable thing. We ought to leave our hands off. No government should regulate it. And he's speaking for uh, liberal Democrats. Uh, uh, let's, let's leave it alone. Uh, it's wonderful as it is. And lots of countries bought into that. That's completely collapsed now. Well, I, I don't know if it's collapsed, but it's certainly questioned. And the, the questioning is not of one kind. This is the schizophrenia, right? And so in Europe, uh, there's a lot of calls for the speech that uh, is protected by the First Amendment and, and hosted over here to be brought down. Uh, but the thought is the Internet companies shouldn't do it. It should be governments that make that decision right. about what speech should be there and not. In the United States, we don't take that view, except in an informal way when people complain that there is speech that's recruitment for uh, uh, various terrorist organizations and other things. So the companies are in a difficult spot. But but to get – and globally, we're in a difficult spot in terms of a, a, po- a policy and whether there can be a coherent borderless policy. I'm skeptical that there can mm-hmm. be anymore. Uh but to get to the Twitter, Twitter uh, issue, let me provide a legal perspective to this and a concern, which is the verification uh, uh, check, as I understand, used to be purely to verify that you were who you were, which right. makes sense. Yep. And then at some point it became either an endorsement of something beyond that. Or a prestige mark or something. Prestige. Yes. The legal foundation by which uh, many Internet companies uh, thrive is one that they're not held liable for the speech of others or for being considered publishers for the content that they host. As long as they're not editing. As long as they're not editing. What concerns me about the trend here is two things. One is that it begins to look a little bit more like they're making editorial decisions, whether it legally pierces the veil of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I don't think so in this context, but it's a trend that could have policy question that. Secondly, it was also based on the premise that the online environment provided unique challenges for being able to explore whether content was illegal, unlawful, or objectionable. And we gave companies immunity so that exploring those issues and getting knowledge of something that could create liability, we would take that off the table for Mm -hmm. them, right? But when you start investigating things that are not online anymore, that could be offline, right? There's a very legitimate question of whether you have any immunity at any point anymore, especially as you begin to do things online for activities that are protected there, that in the offline context, that knowledge would never be protected. And I think there's a conflation here that could be 
concerning for some companies and in-house counsels they look in this space. Well, they're not the only company that has announced they're going to look at people's offline activity or at least out, outside the platform activity. I think when uh, uh, Airbnb got on their high moral horse and said they weren't going to allow uh, 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 white supremacists to rent houses mm-hmm. in places where there were going to be demonstrations, mm-hmm. uh, they said they were going to find those people by mm-hmm. looking through a host of other uh, online uh, uh, postings. Yeah, I I do think the, the the problem we're seeing is that while the magaziner consensus is breaking down uh, in a lot of governments, we have we have relied on it to avoid asking hard questions like, uh, well, how much free speech should platforms allow? And how do you decide whether a platform is engaged in activity? I mean, I, I, speaking as a conservative, I am completely convinced that uh, I, I would, you know, my views across the board would be treated as hate speech by 75% of Silicon Valley engineers. Uh, and they would be delighted to shut me down if they could. Uh, and this is partly Twitter uh, um, uh, and the mobbing phenomenon mm-hmm. there. People are afraid of being mobbed themselves, so even if they didn't want to shut me down, they'd shut me down to, so, to avoid being mobbed. Uh, and so there is a real problem uh, protecting a range of, I think, legitimate uh, views um, in a context where instead of having an Internet where you can wander at will uh, and you just have mechanical access uh, to a curated walled garden that is almost as big as the Internet, uh, Facebook or uh, uh, YouTube or uh, Twitter. Those are enormous uh, uh, parts of the Internet these days, but they are controlled by people who are easily intimidated by Twitter mobs. Or controlled by people who can pay for sponsored advertisements for pennies on the dollar yes. and get that uh, con- uh, that content uh, in the public uh, media. I, look, I think these are tough issues, but the schizophrenia is hard to navigate. Even within, for instance, just our U.S. government, you may have speech that a senator complains is speech that is encouraging people to be recruited to a terrorist organization, uh, and they're being... Uh, bullied to take that down, and another part of the government wants that information up there for law enforcement investigation purposes, right? So uh, it's not easy uh, for these companies to be put in the position, and I think, uh, uh, but we have a challenge when um, the content is so easily disseminated and uh, editorial decisions are easy to point out uh, the inconsistencies in those positions taken, as you have. I think we're going to... We're going to see a revival of the public forum discussions that you know that, you, that there used to be discussions about whether a large shopping mall could was bound in some respects by First Amendment uh, obligations, uh, I, and I would not be surprised to see an erosion of the First Amendment rights of. Twitter and Google and Facebook to make their own editorial decisions uh, as we discover that those editorial decisions are easily influenced by every government but ours, uh, uh, since the First Amendment doesn't extend beyond our uh, our borders. Uh, and so the only protection uh, for um, speech is uh, protection of other governments' approved speech. Uh, how, how I think it'll probably happen is not necessarily constitutionally in the First Amendment because I think that is challenging, but I think it'll be in courts questioning the 
broad immunity from liability that Section 230 provides. And you've already seen courts, uh, uh, the Ninth Circuit in particular, start to question whether Section 230 ought to be interpreted as broadly as it should or I has think you been. Could, I think you could see that in Congress. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the conservative Republicans already think that uh, Silicon Valley hates them and discriminates against them. Uh, and they'll, they'll be happy to tell you that about all the platforms. Uh, uh, and they're not wrong. Uh, and then uh, most of the Democratic Party hates uh, um, Silicon Valley because they feel that they um, enabled uh, uh, Trump's election. Mm-hmm. But I think for Congress, the, the, the reason I think it's probably harder is that the same policy that you would apply to Twitter will apply to Breitbart. And so you have a hard time getting yes. political constituencies. I think the courts will be the vanguard here that will say, you know, we're not going to say that there may be some liability for uh, encouraging content that uh, manipulates elections and if you know about it or in other ways that pierce the Section 230 um Yeah, it could, be, uh, could easily be. I, yeah. Okay, but this is, yeah. I, uh, this is a long-term theme that we're going to get to work out uh, over time. But, um, and another one uh, is there's a, that's a great uh, report out. It's actually kind of the final release of the report that uh, was teased uh, a few months ago about how China's 50-cent army actually operates. And um, most people have assumed that the 50-cent army operated the way the Russian uh, uh, bot armies operate, which is to find people they don't like and, and swarm them with vicious comments and uh, uh, trash talk. Uh, uh, and what this study shows, and it's looking at, you know, uh, as as all good studies these days uh, are based on uh, a massive leaked database uh, of uh, uh, 50-cent army participants reporting to their uh, paymasters, or at least their bosses, on what they've been doing. Um, what this study says is that there are almost there's no trash talking. There's no engaging with uh, critics of the regime. It's almost all happy talk around um, events that need to be celebrated in the view of the Chinese government. Uh, uh, you know, anniversaries, uh, uh, the latest party conf- uh, uh, convention, etc. Um, a striking. Uh, it makes you wonder whether they're the. Chinese or the Russian model is more effective at controlling uh, cyberspace, but they both seem to be working toward a goal of controlling cyberspace that is, you know, eerily effective. But has the U.S. government figured out, at least in in a in, in some ways, of the importance of controlling speech, or at least the narrative of the speech that's available in a proactive way? Uh, overseas with regard to the propaganda that both Russia and China uh, use so effectively within our borders. Against us, yes. So I right. think they're, they're, they said, you know, you spent, uh, you spent the 90s and the early part of the 21st century saying we're going to export all of our cool technology and the values that go with it to you. Well, we've developed cool technology of our own and some values that go with it, and we're going to be exporting it to you. I mean, it, it, it could be the fact that Russia's figured out they don't have to spend the defense budget we do, but if they put a little bit more toward their propaganda budget, they can get a lot achieved. Oh, in, in absolutely. A way that, uh, 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, in defense of our own country, we have a pretty significant propaganda budget of our own in the not nearly broadcasting the board of governors and Russia has, though. State Department. So it's not as though we're totally immune from doing this. And, you know, you've had, you've had members of Congress who have been worried that we're going to propagandize our own citizens through the State Department mechanism. David, do you want to jump in? Well, I, I've looked at this report on how the 50 cent army operates, and I'm struck by the way in which the Chinese have discovered something that advertisers have also discovered, which is that if you argue directly against something, you, you can create a backfire effect. Yeah. You reinforce people's initial prejudices. There's a confirmation bias thing going on here. So the Chinese have realized rather than argue against potentially dangerous views, distract them. Play some nice music. Talk about uh, what, what a great job the Chinese basketball team did. And uh, I think you could, you could see lots of parallel examples in other spheres like advertising emerging. Yeah, I, you know, what the report suggested was that there's a consistent, in addition to the happy talk thesis, uh, there was a thesis that we're going to let people talk about things they don't like about the government, things they don't like about China, um, as long as they don't move from that to events where large numbers of people might show up. That, that's where we're going to draw the line. You can't do that, and we'll shut that down. But if you want to complain, we want to know what people are complaining about because that's part of our market research. We can change that. If people are complaining about uh, corruption, we'll arrest a few more corrupt officials. It's not like uh, uh, we don't have a, a large supply. Uh, and... Um, I, I'm not convinced they're right about that. That's a that's a good short to medium term strategy. But if if your own leadership is reading so much criticism and the criticism all fits a single pattern, sooner or later they're going to believe the criticism and it's going to seep into the the bones of the party in a way that might lead to traumatic change down the road. But as a short term strategy for letting people feel pretty free uh, without risking the party's control of the state works pretty well. This is another yardstick in the post-truth world that I fear is is coming. Don't argue the facts. That may blow up in your face. Uh, distract from the facts. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, you know, in our view of in the marketplace of ideas, the right ideas will prevail. It's avoid the conversation about those ideas uh, in, uh, as a way of uh, prevailing. Okay. So this is right. You know, this is the episode 193, the downer episode. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I was at an announcement uh, where Rob Joyce talked about the, uh, the vulnerabilities equities process. Uh, uh, this is the process by which uh, um, security holes in existing products are examined by the U.S. government and uh, uh, the government decides, yeah, we're going to use that for spying or we're going to tell the uh, manufacturer that they ought to close the hole. Um, it, I have to say, uh, uh, looking at it, uh, uh, Brian Markham, uh, I didn't look all that different from the, pro the, the uh, policy that we've had up to now. Maybe a little more clarity on who gets to sit at the table, and the Commerce Department is clearly at the table now. Uh, uh, maybe a little more detail on how they weigh these things, but uh, it looked to me like more continuity than uh, departure from the past. 
I agree with that. And also a continued embracing of the idea that the government is going to be public about this process. We saw that begin in the last administration uh, when Michael Daniel did a blog post in 2013 or 2014. And this seems remarkably consistent. I think Rob even said that in his own blog post, that this is kind of tightening up the process without radically changing it. I'd say I think there's some degree of courage that this uh, announcement took because it seems like a totally adult, rational policy to take, but yet one that can be publicly demagogued should there be an adverse incident <laughs> or something that's later found out that could be used against the White House in a demagogic fashion uh, endlessly. I, I think that's probably right. And you saw a little of that Microsoft uh, uh, blamed uh, uh, NSA uh, I, for a particular uh, um, flaw in uh, uh, their products that was exploited after uh, disclosure by the shadow brokers. Uh, um, I, 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 but I think on the whole, it's, it is a, a very rational process and one that we could probably be proud of compared to other countries. Uh, China has a, clearly has a vulnerability equity process too. Um, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting story that came out also this week saying, studying how quickly China's, uh, uh, cert process, uh, produces reports of vulnerabilities and they quite consistently beat DHS. Uh, uh, they were faster uh, on uh, dumb little uh, flaws and then on serious flaws that might actually uh, be useful to for, for espionage. They were way behind them. And the implication was uh, China has found these vulnerabilities and started using them and only discloses them when somebody else discloses them. Uh, they're almost never first with these uh, serious vulnerabilities. And the people who did the study were actually able to find situations where it was clear that Chinese origin malware using the the, uh, the vulnerability was on the street prior to the disclosure. Um, so uh, there, those are contrasting approaches to the problem uh, and maybe a reflection of the different politics of the different countries. All right. Um, one more Chinese uh, item. Uh, the uh, uh, the Defense Department has discovered that all those security, quote, security, unquote, uh, cameras that they've been putting up around their bases are Chinese made and uh, potentially full of security vulnerabilities. This is kind of scary. I don't think you can buy a quote unquote security uh, camera these days that isn't made in China, uh, at least not for a price that you would want to pay. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to see more and more of this as people start saying, I want, I want things that, that cost less than 50 bucks connected to the internet. Uh, you can't do that if you aren't making them in China and putting, you know, crappy Linux, uh, 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 three-year-old Linux versions in. This is the question. Why was, must we learn this lesson over and over again? I mean, didn't we learn this when we built an embassy in, in a certain country that we had to tear down and rebuild yes. when we decided we couldn't trust uh, domestic vendors? <laughs> well, this is kind of a question of China is like a, a domestic player in the U.S. at all. You know, this is not just our government. The Memphis Police Department was quoted in the journal story as having bought all these cameras, and they said, look, these are the cheapest cameras out there we can't as you said Stuart how do we buy anything that's not from China if yeah. that's our concern so it's a it's a pretty big question in a way yeah well drones are the other thing uh, you know commercial consumer drones DA 
DJI is by far the dominant producer of those. Uh, they take a lot of the data that it, that uh, um, uh, the footage that people uh, store and store it back in China. Um, and there is uh, it's worth reading with, uh, as an antidote to some of the or maybe uh, uh, lessons learned from some of the discussions we've had about bug bounty programs. DJI an- announced a bug bounty program, but they didn't specify in any detail some of the things that uh, uh, we've heard uh, you need to specify. And some guy went in and did research, uh, uh, security research on uh, uh, DJI's servers and ended up downloading mass quantities of data that he said uh, were <laughs> exposed to him. And then he, he wanted to get a bounty. And first, uh, DJI said, we're going to give you a bounty. And then they said, uh, uh, but actually, maybe instead of a bounty, we'll just report you to the federal government for violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, uh, which does suggest that, you know, participating in a bounty program uh, really requires a pretty careful set of uh, uh, prior commitments on both sides. Because uh, uh, this guy probably downloaded a lot more than you would have expected him to. And uh, uh, DJI responded in a fashion that uh, probably is not going to make them very popular in the security right. community. Uh, so, uh, security, it's hard. Uh and um, a couple of things I just can't resist. Uh, Backflipping robots. Jeez, if you haven't seen this, you should go to the uh, – uh, just type backflipping robot in and, and click on video. There is a great video from Boston Robotics of a uh, humanoid uh, uh, robot uh, uh, jumping from box to box to box and getting on the last box, doing a 180, and then jumping off in a backflip. It's spectacular and – uh, you know, of course, a little creepy. Stuart, is this where most people watch cat videos and this is how you spend yeah. your time? Yes, exactly. Yes, cute robots. Uh, exactly. Unfortunately, there are no cute robots. The cuter they get, the creepier they get. It's, it's weird. Uh, all right. And, um, and, and a security risk for people uh, traveling as a family this, uh, uh, this holiday season. Uh, uh, you may have noticed a story where uh, uh, a... Uh, an uh, international flight had to land because of a big fight between husband and wife, uh, you know, brutal and physical, apparently. Uh, uh, it turns out it was a computer security lesson. The husband was looking at his phone, fell asleep on the plane. The wife said, I'm just going to put his thumb on his iPhone and read the mail, <laughs> discovers that she might not be first in his affection anymore and starts beating him. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, even even air rage uh, uh, items now are lessons in computer security. I will not ask anybody to comment on that. I, uh, I, actually, I want to move quickly now to uh, to talk to David uh, about uh, the quantum spy. Um, it, it's a... a it's obviously tech focused, as your couple of your last uh, thrillers have been, uh, uh, and it's focused on quantum computing. Um, uh, tell me uh, what it 
quantum computing is and why it's relevant to spying agencies. Uh, With apologies to the real technologists listening, uh, my understanding is that quantum computing, uh, as opposed to the normal uh, bits that are in the architecture of a computer that are zero or one, qubits are simultaneously zero and one, vastly multiplying the connections, the computing power of a quantum computer if one could be built. The implications for our intelligence agencies are obvious. A quantum computer could factor very large numbers and could probably shred any encryption system that's been uh, that's been created. Already it's been dem- demonstrated that in, in encryption, going the other way, a quantum technology could be very powerful, Powerful could, could create uh, new ways of encrypting uh, things. In, if for companies that rely on payment systems that are encrypted, uh, the implications, I think, of quantum uh, technology also are huge. Uh, and f- finally, I was just thinking the other day, you know, if I was buying a lot of Bitcoin, and I realized that there was a potential within, say, the next 10 years for a computer so powerful that it could shred the encryption that encases Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I might mark down my holdings a little bit. So for all those reasons, I thought the technology was really interesting. Uh-huh. And uh, so why would the CIA be interested in this kind of technology? Well, Stuart, as you may know, but as, as I discovered in my research, uh, the NSA has been interested for years because of the, uh, the decryption capabilities, the ability to attack uh, codes. Uh, even the biggest uh, supercomputers, we're told, with brute force attacks uh, have, have difficulty or find impossible uh, the decryption of the very complicated uh, schemes. So it's, it's of real importance. Uh, to the intelligence world ever since a MIT mathematician named Peter Shore asserted that there was this enormous power that a quantum computer could have. People have been chasing it. Uh, in my, doing my research for this book, I went around the country seeing people who were trying to build quantum computers. There's a company based in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, that claims it actually has built one. It's called D-Wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and D-Wave has a machine that well, to purists say it's really a quantum annealer. It's Technology is annealing, not computing, but it's, D-Wave has managed to assemble 2,000 qubits in, in its quantum annealer, uh, the most uh, qubits that in a, in a more serious quantum architecture I, I think are now 20 or 27, so it's a vastly different uh, number. But this D-Wave machine, in terms of optimization problems, uh, aspects of pattern recognition, appears to have some real power. So in, in any event, whichever pathway, and every major uh, IT company is, is chasing this now, whichever pathway um, it proves the, the, the most fruitful, I think this technology is coming at us uh, faster than some people may have imagined, meaning, you know, 10 years from now, I think we'll, we may have some real quantum computing applications. So f- even five years ago, I could find people who would, who would roll their eyes at quantum computing and uh, the, 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 the risk to uh, um, all of our uh, public and private key uh, infrastructure. I, has that just disappeared? Are you, are you, are you still encountering skeptics? Or? There is still a, a, a skeptical wing that I, that I encountered during research for the book. One of the things I play with in, in my novel is, is what works and what doesn't. And I set a clock where some uh, radical piece of, of, of technology, in effect decryption, is necessary. And can this machine, can this little machine do it? And you have to 
read the book to find out what it can do and what it that, can't. That, that's 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 one of the climaxes of the book. Yes, <laughs> it, it, that's uh, quite quite so. Um, one thing that really interested me about about the subject as I got into it uh, is that there is a real race going on, principally between the United States and China, to develop this quantum computing technology. China, as we saw at Xi Jinping's uh, speech, endless speech at the 19th Party Plenum, he has uh, announced that China will seek to dominate the commanding heights of technology in the future, supercomputing, AI, and quantum computing is very much one of the things that China wants to dominate. So, you know, I don't mean to overstate it, but there's a little bit of a Manhattan Project race going on to see who can get this very powerful computing uh, system into the, into the field first. Um, and uh, so it's yet another issue about China that we can all worry about and scratch our heads about. So they, they clearly, uh, uh, they're obviously enamored of uh, uh, quantum, all things quantum. They uh, put a satellite in the air, if I remember right, that actually uh, – um, had entangled photons that were uh, uh, allowing communication, you know, photon by photon, but still communication with the satellite uh, that they said was unbreakably encrypted uh, because it was uh, uh, was using quantum entanglement uh, as its mechanism, and there's no way to intercept that. Uh, um, so they, they they've clearly put a lot of effort into this, and they must believe that they're going to get a big payoff. Well, I think they, they, they see this as a potentially world-changing technology. People who are quantum computing enthusiasts argue that this really will radically change everything from material science to how you make uh, d- 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 drugs. Uh, anything that requires computing power will be vastly different when you have a machine of this of this power available. And obviously the Chinese, with their vision of, of a China t- in 2050 that dominates all of the... the the, the heights of, of, of technology uh, is is inter- interested in this. The um, you know I, I keep encountering, as I said earlier, the skeptics who just roll their eyes and say, just keeping these little qubits that do the computing from decohering from 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 you know for be, be being they, they only last milliseconds. Right. The time in which they can do computing is just a tiny fraction of time. Um, and one of the fascinating things about this technology is that uh, people think that it's best to keep the, the chips that have these qubits uh, at super low temperatures. You know, advanced uh, cryogenic technology is used to take uh, these chips down to, it's on the order of 11 millikelvin. There's something that I say in the novel is the coldest place in the universe is one of these chips. Right. It's colder than deep space. So there are all kinds of, of little weird anomalies that go into uh, reducing any interference in the chip, any any uh, heat, uh, any kind of electromagnetic interference, so that the qubits will stay alive and computing a little bit longer. Yeah, I got the impression. I think I, I saw someplace that the resources that go into error correction versus the resources that are going into computation is like two thousand times uh, as much resource going into error correction as in calculation because of, I assume, the fragility of the. the That's qubits. one. Re- reason that the skeptics are, are skeptical, that the quantum computer needs to be accompanied by a very powerful classical computer to correct its errors. And people say, you know, at some point, that, that's just not a winning bet. <laughs> but it is true. I, you know, I've forgotten now, but I think we're all going to realize again, um, all of our 
uh, internet uh, encryption uh, uh, security uh, depends on uh, the difficulty of factoring large numbers or some equivalent uh, elliptic curve calculations and the like. Uh, and when you ask people, when, when you ask cryptographers, can you guarantee that this can't be broken, they say, well, it's impractical to break it because it would take until the end of the universe using a computer that is ten times faster than any computer that exists on Earth to uh, uh, calculate the uh, uh, the two primes that were used to generate that number. Uh, and it's it's uncomfortable to be told, well, yeah, it's possible, but we don't think it's possible using today's technology because there's always the risk there'll be a technology jump. And what you're saying is uh, that technology jump could be here in 10 years. It, it could be here. The Some of the smartest uh, physicists, computer scientists in the world, um, certainly in the United States, are working on this problem. Uh, I visited um, the people at Microsoft's Station Q at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Michael Friedman is the principal um, uh, physicist here who were working on what they call topological braiding, uh, using advanced materials to to braid the the qubits in a more stable form. Uh, And just some fantastic ideas like that at the University of Maryland, a few miles from where we are right now. uh, There's a center for quantum research that's among the most advanced the country where they have a, another technology I look at in the novel called the single ion or ion trap. So these different pathways, and it, it, it is, you know, we all understand that with science, something is impossible right up to the moment that it's done, and then pow, yeah. you break through that opening, and, and there's very rapid progress, and there, there are more and more people who think that's going to happen in this really esoteric, um, powerful area. So uh, I really like the quantum spy, but I didn't uh, read it or uh, remember it for the science and, or the technology. Thank, uh, thank goodness. <laughs> it's, uh, um, uh, that's, uh, you know, the, uh, uh the quantum technology here is kind of a MacGuffin, if, uh, it, uh, uh, to use a uh, Alfred Hitchcock term. It's it's the thing that everybody is chasing, so that you can have a chase. Uh, and um, what's really interesting in the book, I think, is the interaction between um, a ethnic Chinese American who's joined the CIA uh, uh, and his exploitation of his ethnicity to become a more effective spy in China and the guy that he breaks down, uh, and then the clever way in which uh, other Chinese spy masters play with his ethnicity to leave him questioning, you know, what his uh, place in the world is. Uh, uh, Harris Chang's his name. Uh, uh, you spent a lot of time on inside his head. Uh, <laughs> how did this uh, come to be an interest of yours? Well, as a novelist, this is my tenth novel. You're always looking for a character who will challenge you as um, a man trying to write uh, a convincing woman characters uh, always been, been interesting. In this case, uh, I, I decided I, that my plot was going to involve the race between the U.S. and China to build a quantum computer and the efforts to spy on each other's uh, activities. And I thought having a Chinese-American CIA officer 
in a world where the Chinese have historically, through their Ministry of State Security, their intelligence agency, played on the, um, the cultural uh, sympathies uh, of uh, Americans Others of Chinese yeah. descent I mean, overseas. It's, it's not a, even playing on. I mean, I I I talked to a guy, uh, uh, you know, Chinese Australian, uh, you know, spoke with an Aussie accent, uh, and uh, he was he said, you know, I went to a meeting with Chinese government officials, and they upbraided me as a traitor to my race for not. Uh, adhering to the interests of the Chinese government. There's a kind of expectation. You're Chinese, and therefore you belong to us. That's what Harris Chang, my character, struggles with through this book, but it comes at him for, from so many different angles. He has served in the army in Iraq. He's been a, a courageous uh, uh, part of our of our these wars of the last decade. A lot of the experience I had as a correspondent in those places, I put in into Harris's uh, uh, head. He he uses his Chinese Americanness. In a, his initial recruitment of a, of a Chinese uh, computer scientist in, in Singapore, subtly plays on, on this man's vulnerability, takes him down, and then is, is played himself. And what really begins to bother him is that he senses that for his CIA colleagues, for his FBI colleagues, the fact that he's a Chinese American is central to their perception of him, and that there is a subtle but real racism going on here. Uh, and I, I, I just I think that is true to life. There are many people who are in our intelligence community who want to want to serve, want to be valuable, understand that the particular cultural background they may bring to the work is is is, is part of what what they're offering. But are still troubled. There are issues of, of of gender. So many women have risen to significant positions in the intelligence community. Uh, feel great about that, but but there is often a sting. There's a memory. Of, of the way they were treated early in their careers. That's another theme that I play with I- I- in this novel. And, I, you know, Stuart, the... Let me, let, me, let me push on this, because I, I, I think this is, this is true, uh, it, it, but um, understandable, right? Uh, I'm sure that if you're a woman in the CIA, if you're actually uh, in the DO, um, one, you, you have a chance to be much more successful uh, if you're prepared to use what used to be described as feminine wiles, and it's kind of impossible not to, right? Uh, at the same time, there's got to be a kind of resentment of the fact that that works or that n- any suggestion from your boss that you do that is going to be deeply unwelcome. So uh, the, the problem is it works, and yet it uh, uh, it doesn't fit with a modern self-image of a of a feminist uh, uh, member of the CIA, and the same thing has got to be true for Chinese Americans, where they everybody knows the Chinese are going to make a play. The Chinese government is going to make a play for the folks who are ethnic Chinese first, because they think that those folks owe them. Uh, and so uh, there's a little bit of suspicion that attaches to you if you're Chinese uh, and there's, um, as there is in your book, a hint of a possible Chinese penetration of the agency uh, and yet you know, even even though you can acknowledge that if you're if you're Chinese American inside the agency, it must gall you that you know you're top, top of the list 
war examination every time that issue comes up. The great thing about being a novelist is that you don't have to write a policy paper or a HR yeah. uh, report, or you don't have to have to do the sorts of things I, I do twice a week in my uh, op-ed column for the Washington Post. You don't have to be prescriptive. You just have to describe, and I think you just described very well what I heard over and over again as I was doing research for this book, that people understanding that their special skills, their 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 uh, feminine wiles, you described earlier, you know, women case officers know that in interactions with men, especially in foreign cultures, the first thing that man is going to think, you know, is, is why is this woman sitting down talking to me? What's going on here? And they have a template for that, and, and people pl- play with that, but they also resent it. Same same with uh, Chinese American or, or Arab American. So many Muslim Americans have come into yep. the world of intelligence. They're really proud of what they're doing, that they feel that they're making a contribution to the country, but they, I think, sometimes worry that they're being used. Do you really get it? Do you, do you understand uh, what, how this sounds to me, how this feels to me? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's one reason I get nervous when I hear the kind of rhetoric that comes from our president is there's so many people who are serving our country, who are risking their lives every day, who are Muslim Americans, who feel like, oh, you know, I'm on the team. I'm, 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 you know, what's, is there, is there a fundamental prejudice against people, uh, from my religion that, that, that's, uh, you know, woven into, into our, our leadership? So it's, it's, uh, again, um, I'm outside of the, the area of, of writing op-ed pieces. I'm not going to say how terrible this or that is. I'm just going to describe it for you. Uh, no, it's, it, as it, a novelist it, it, it really is interesting. And I do think, you know, in 2016, I think, was the first presidential campaign in history where one candidate from a major party called the other, just flat out called him a racist. Um, and you can blame the fact that maybe he is a racist, or you can blame the fact that, that, the, that the name-calling occurred, but uh, it, it's a real change. The, the notion, the kind of reversion to uh, uh, charges of racism, uh, I think, changes uh, the view we have of ourselves as a country. Uh, and um, uh, I'm not sure how a... Um, uh, a multi-ethnic society deals with the kinds of tensions you're talking about inside their intelligence service. Well, we're uh, we are uh, the the country that is is diverse, and people who've wanted to uh, attack us, undermine us, have always understood that that's our vulnerability. My point of reference for this is a document I obtained years ago, the 1980s, written by the British. Secret Intelligence Service describing its covert action against the United States in 1939, 1940, 1941. It was absolutely central to British security that isolationism in America be destroyed. And so Britain, through a secret front called British Security Cooperation based in New York, uh, began to go into the districts of isolationist members of Congress and take them down. Mm-hmm. Put out lies, smear people, do the things that intelligence services do because it was absolutely vital to, to Britain's national security. And in the report describing this extraordinary program, the British authors have opened with a little essay about what America is, written from the perspective of intelligence practitioners mm-hmm. seeking to frame a covert action. 
and it, it, it bears reading yeah, as we think right. think now about Russia's efforts to look at America. Where are the cracks? Where are the fissures? How do you drive a wedge in those? And that's exactly what the British did. They, it's a, there's a very kind of cynical, calculated uh, British is, is summary. It's almost like Tocqueville of who we are as a people, and then how do you take us down? Well, perfidious Albion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, no, I, that's, I'd love to read that. That's that's great because uh, we're so used to thinking them, of them as our friends, and they were friends if we were on their side at that time, but it wasn't clear we were going to be. And uh, the idea that they would come in and do covert action, dirty tricks uh, to influence our politics is really not something that has entered the um, the political mainstream. Uh, it's. I first wrote about this when I got the document back in, in the late 1980s, and in my previous novel, I put this as a little mini subplot um, and there's an extraordinary amount of documentation it's it's uh, interesting you know we everybody loves Britain I, I went to King's College Cambridge I'm absurdly Anglophile but I, I just n- note that in a period when we're trying to think about what is covert action what is the process of manipulating another country politically um, which obviously is what the Russians and I think increasingly the Chinese will seek to do to us through this amazing new technology it's this is a very interesting case study not generally understood and and, and because the British wrote a report that got leaked you can see just how they conceived it well and, and- the the only successful, uh, clearly successful effort to uh, shape our politics uh, by a foreign intelligence operation. Although they did it, they did it in World War One as well with the Zimmerman telegram. But then it was at least true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, often good covert action is based on things that are that are that are true. Starts with things that are true. So uh, last question, because you're close to the agency and you've been thinking about uh, morale. I, there was a very good New York Times article about morale at NSA in the wake of the disclosures from the shadow brokers and a fear that there were still uh, security holes that were being exploited uh, um, inside the agency. Uh, that story did not talk at all about the Vault 7, Vault 8 disclosures that are coming out about uh, reportedly CIA uh, uh, hacking tools. Uh, but they look every bit, if they really are CIA tools, they look every bit as damaging to uh, uh, to the agency uh, as some of the shadow brokers stuff. And I wonder, are you hearing that there are there's turmoil in the uh, CIA in the way that uh, the Times reports the NSA is experiencing? I'll give you an honest answer, which is that whatever efforts are going on to understand uh, what was compromised, how is it compromised, uh, are just not visible to me. I know that there's great consternation about the hemorrhage of, of secrets, of the most secret things that the United States government does, both the NSA and CIA have, have have emerged, have been, have either been leaked by somebody on the inside or have been pulled by a foreign intelligence service and then played back in in ways that uh, obscure uh, how the information came, came out. We're following so many different possibilities here. I, th- I think the thing that 
uh, interests me um, uh, beyond the, the revelations and the damage is how do you create a work environment at CIA or NSA where uh, creative, eccentric people who will be good hackers, who will be clever, diabolically clever in thinking about these tools, uh, don't feel like they're working every day in a straitjacket. Nobody would want to come to work and feel that, that every aspect of their life, every every keystroke, uh, public and private, uh, is is uh, is regimented and observed. Um, so how, how do you have Except a work Twitter, environment? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that this is a, a serious puzzle. I mean, maybe in yeah. the future we'll have we'll have computers write our software and write our malware too, yeah. and the computers won't get her feelings if we're observing uh, what other computers they talk to. But I, I think this, you know, creating a work environment where a creative, smart young person would want to work in the intelligence community is, an, is a non-trivial problem. I, I, I completely agree with you. The, the psychological state that's required to be a good attacker is really inconsistent with being a good defender. Uh, you know, defensive linemen are very different from offensive linemen uh, in spirit psycho- psychology uh, and what they want to do. And when you ask people to be an attacker 90% of the time and then flip a switch and observe all of the mundane, boring, but necessary rules that are required to ensure uh, good computer security, it's a real challenge. Well, I, I think this is a is a puzzle that this amorphous world that the Russians seem to have drawn. They seem to have found a way to kind of use their hacker underground, use the you know their version of the DEFCON world, if you will, uh, and 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 harness the talents without uh, making it. Uh, yeah. if I understand formally, you know, part of. The government. That's a, that's an interesting puzzle. Although they've had their problems, right? They had to they had to put a bag over the head of one of their agents in the middle of a uh, a, a spy convention and hustle him off for a treason trial. Uh, who had been part of that world? So, so they've 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 had their problems in, uh, with the same phenomenon. The the idea that a super creative hacker would want to spend his his or her time. Um, in, a, in some, you know, basement in Moscow, as opposed to a basement in in Chevy Chase, I just don't believe it. <laughs> All right, uh, David Ignatius, a uh, great uh, uh, spy thriller, the Quantum Spy, uh, uh, out uh, uh, now, and uh, I I recommend it uh, not just for the technology, but because it's a it's a great set of observations. Uh, no final white paper policy conclusions, but a, a great psychological study of some of the cross-currents uh, in the director of operations today. Thank you, Stuart. All right. Uh, thanks to David Ignatius, Brian Egan, and Markham Erickson. This has been episode 193 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Remember, if you've got somebody to suggest to come on the program, just let us know at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll give you a uh, highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, um, we're going to be well, – with this is um, – uh, because it's sort of a vacation week. Uh, next week, we're going to do uh, another uh, work of fiction. Uh, uh, author Rob Reed, who's written a book about artificial intelligence, the other MacGuffin of the 
2010s, uh, and uh, I think you'll find this is a much more humorous work uh, um, in which an artificial intelligence achieves um, sentience, but because of the particular application that the uh, 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 artificial intelligence was used in, uh, it uh, develops a personality not unlike a eighth grade mean girl. It's, uh, uh, it's a delight to read. Uh, Rob Reed will be on. Uh, he's also a, a thinker on the future of technology, and we'll be talking about that. Uh, so please join us for that and uh, other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.